Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week's guest is a fellow podcaster and was the match director for this year's Chile Custom Gunworks Michigan sectional. That's a that's a mouthful. Join me in welcoming Alex Mansfield, aka Manny, to the show. How are you doing, Manny? Doing fantastic, Dave. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. Oh, I had to return the favor. I just wanted to wait a little bit so that we weren't like back to back on each other's podcasts. That'd be weird. Eh, it could be. It might work out that better way. Yeah, maybe. All right. So as you may know, I'll actually take a moment and introduce yourself, Manny. I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, that's okay. Um, so for any of your listeners who don't know who I am, um, I'm Alex or Manny from Manny Talk Shooting, a fellow podcaster and competitive USPSA shooter um cro match director uh play a bunch of different hats i guess so i'm fully developed into the competitive shooting arena all right there we go and we're going to talk more about that and your podcast here shortly um as you may well know i like to ask uh certain icebreaker questions so we're going to begin there we're going to throw all the hard questions at you at the beginning your favorite movie Ooh, so I had to pick two. I couldn't decide on just one because so many good movies have come out in my, you know, throughout my whole life. So, but I guess my top favorite movie of all time is The Dark Crystal. If, if you haven't, The Dark anyone, Crystal. Yeah, The Dark Crystal, like a Jim Henson movie, you know, the puppets. Um, oh. So if anyone is too young to understand what The Dark Crystal is, go look it up. Um, there's even a prequel series on Netflix that uh, kind of describes like the beginning before the actual movie back so long ago. It was a great movie showed like the skill of, uh, you know, puppeteering. It was such a good movie. And then actually being able to see like a Jim Henson display, like, cause the puppets got to travel for a while in an exhibit. So I got later in life, I think about two years ago, I got to actually see some of the puppetry on display. So that was really cool. But a current favorite movie of mine would be the newest Thor movie, Thor Love and Thunder. So if anyone's a superhero fa movie fan, uh, they'd like that movie as well. well. I almost feel like we're going to have to skip the superhero question. I felt like it we just had a spoiler. No, it's not, though. <laughs> it's actually not. <laughs> okay. All right, good. I like the suspense. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. I have found that not too many people read very much anymore. Uh, favorite book? So, so this one was actually pretty hard for me, Dave. Um, I really don't read. I consume a lot of um, audio knowledge, but I had to okay. dig, dig, dig back into memory bank. So I guess my favorite book of all time would be The Hobbit by J.R.L. Tolkien. Mm. So getting to read that, you know, young with my, like, my dad and I liked watching, I think when the first Lord of the Rings movie came out, we kind of took it back. We started reading and I liked The Hobbit more than The Lord of the Rings. So growing up, I've read it a couple of times just to bring back some good memories. But if we need to talk about like my favorite competitive shooting book, though, I would give it to Charlie Perez, The Path of Focused Effort, um, a learning a learning guide for practical shooting. It's uh, it's a very nice book based on you know Charlie's experiences and his forms of teaching. Um, I haven't taken a Charlie class yet, but it's definitely worth picking up the book. Interesting. I, I'm, I've not heard of that one, so I'll have to check that out. Okay. Going back real quick, what was it 
about the Hobbit that made you like that book better than the Lord of the Rings? Um, it was just kind of a lighter book back in, um, for me growing up, but I've always loved fantasy. Like fantasy settings have been like my, my jam. Um, I remember watching cartoons as a kid and stuff and just being absorbed in like more the fantasy more than the sci-fi. And it was just, it was a good story. Okay. How long ago did you read Charlie's book? Um, it's gotta be less than a year now. He, uh, I was very fortunate. He sent me a copy after I had him on my podcast. So I've really gotten to read it and like it. Um, it's different than like a, say a Steve Anderson dry fire book or a Ben Steger book because they just come from different paths and different ways of thinking. So to, in Charlie's book, is it more of an actual book? Because when you mentioned Ben and Steve, I think more of a manual of shooting. You know what I mean? Like how to apply yourself to practical shooting and get better. Mm -hmm. Is Charlie's more about the experience and, or how, what's his book about? If I can describe it in simple terms, his book is kind of like Ben's in a way where it tells you things to do, but it's not necessarily a manual. It's a more of, Hey, for these kind of things, look at these things to do to fix these problems. Um, and it's more of a narrative, even though more than a manual per se, but it's, it's, it's interesting to see how he thinks comparatively to other instructors because he does think of a lot of different things than some other top level uh, national instructors. Okay. Well, he's got the experience. So it's, and it's interesting how I, I was talking to somebody about this recently. I mean, you could, who was it? Uh, I forget who I was talking to, but I used JJ and Ben as an example. Tyler Meisenheimer. Is that who it was? Yep. I was listening to okay. that today. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, you've got two totally different guys, equally able, but with completely different methods of teaching and what they teach. So... I find it interesting. So now I'm now I'm intrigued by Charlie Perez's book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I, one reason right. why I really like it is the fact that it's spiral bound. So when you fold it over, it doesn't like destroy the binding. Oh, that is nice. That's unique, actually. Yeah, I think Steve's books and Charlie's book are the only ones that are like that currently on the market. I, I and I almost feel like Ben's books could be like that. Like you could put little. Um, what are those little sticky yellow colored tabs, you mm -hmm. know, where you could separate stuff out. And if it were spiral bound, you could easily just flip to that page. Right. Yeah. Especially like with his book, um, with his newest book, Practical Shooting Fundamentals are found. I don't know. It's the one with the new 20, 1911 on the cover when there's so many sections of that book. It just, that would actually be nice. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, even the loading manuals, I wish they were like that. Mm. So, mm -hmm. all right. Moving along. Your favorite gun of all time and your favorite caliber. They don't have to be married together. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a cheat on this one. So I'm going to, I can't say I have a favorite particular gun, although that'd be selfish, but it's the fact of all open guns, all 2011 open guns are my favorite purely for the fact is like, you know, in the competition market and the competition scene tests a lot of equipment and it's been able to push innovation throughout the regular industry. 
but I think open guns just look cool. They're enjoyable to shoot. Um, they might be a little loud sometimes, but um, there's no uh, rush. That's there's an no... understatement. They're always yeah. loud. <laughs> no, 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 no. My gun is not loud. Most open guns aren't loud. And I, most people think oh, this is blasphemous. I only put inner ears in. I don't wear, pl- I don't wear muffs. I can't do it. Okay. But, uh, well, most of the open guns I've seen are very loud. You just need to unless know if you're shooting them, they're not as loud. It's when you're not the shooter that you're like, "Holy guacamole, Batman!" And, and maybe I've been so you know how they say nose blind. Maybe I'm just ear blind to open guns. But even before I started shooting open, uh, they didn't really bother me because they just even when you're at like even the RO or someone back there, they've never seemed to bother me. Do you have the reactive ears that um, shut off when there's a loud noise or uh, are yours always off? Um, I used to have reactive ears until they keep dying on me. And I'm just like, it's not worth recharging them because they're going to die. So currently all I'm using is just some regular basic plugs. Because using the reactive ones, I have found most times people shooting nine millimeter won't shut off my hearing, mm-hmm. but I have had open guns on other bays shut my hearing off. Hmm. That's why I say it's it's loud. Yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah. caliber then. Um, it, that would be thirty eight super comp. Um, I currently don't own a thirty eight super comp gun, but uh, getting to shoot a few of those, it is a different experience altogether, and just it's it's an amazing cartridge you know it's it was made through competition shooting like i remember you know you talking to todd jarrett and getting to learn about the 38 tj so i mean it it all kind of grows from the needs of the sport so Mm -hmm. unique in that way Mm -hmm. so but why do you like so obviously you're shooting nine major Mm -hmm. is it less is the super comp less violent there's more case volume so you can get away with Say, without being a, such a compressed load, more mm, off t- more okay. often than not. So you can put the same type of bullet, almost the same powder charge, yet still have, you know, a quarter inch of case with, you know, the bullet sitting on top of the powder, not necessarily pressing it down. But that does help with chamber pressure. I mean, that's that would relieve it. So that's a, that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I'm going to say, yeah, that's less violent. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All right. So... The fifth question I try to make unique to the guest, and in your case, it's going to get a little spicy. Ooh. Now, because you have your own podcast, so you have to deal with some of the things that I deal with as well, which is what all the podcasters deal with. And what are your thoughts on the current political situation within the USPSA? Ooh. You really do start with the spicy ones right away. What do I think of the current? <laughs> Although I don't necessarily always like to talk openly about my disple- displeasures with the board, I will say this is um, I am not one to jump to first round conclusions. I will I will sit back a little bit and observe, but I'm very critical of them in my opinions but I'm not going to personally attack um, any board member or their decisions um, without probable cause or enough, you know, digging into the information. But 
sometimes when they make decisions like the current, you know, the the initial push membership for dues. membership dues, I think that was completely wrong. Even though yeah. I am a life member, I still feel for the rest of the the sport, it's like there definitely should have been in the initial push a grace period or a window. So if people want to know my more about my opinions on things, they're more than willing to have me to share. But uh, like I state, I don't necessarily need to attack the board because it just causes more drama and it gets us nowhere. Well, I'm going to say two things. One, um, I sent off a letter after Yemen Lin's removal and um, Leighton and Ted both called me. Mm -hmm. So they were good conversations. That doesn't mean I agree with what they do or what they say, but they were good, pleasant conversations. And the one with Leighton was like an hour and a half long. It was long. So, you know, we, we had a lot of discussion. Um, but again, it doesn't mean I agree with what they do or they, what they say, but it, it was pleasant. So like you, I, I don't attack the individuals. I've had pleasant conversation with Scott Arnberg too. Mm -hmm. Um, but I totally agree that the way that they went about upping the membership dues was a very poor choice. There should have been much more thought put into that and not a, I, I don't want to call it a spur of the moment vote, but I felt like somebody should have made a motion. They put the information out there in the minutes and somebody should have put a motion up to revisit it the, the following month. Mm -hmm. Then you would get feedback. You don't have to ask for feedback. You're going to get feedback. And then oh, you can make a decision. You know what I mean? And then, they wouldn't have had this issue. I don't know why they voted on it right then. I was like, that's crazy. That's just asking for trouble. I don't get it. Well, and it, it was unfortunate for Russell. He just became the Area 8 director mm -hmm. at the beginning of that meeting and had to vote on, on a very big matter. And I don't necessarily think that was the right call on the board to throw somebody right into the fire and say, hey, um, make this big decision with us. At, but at the same time, he's a grown man. Mm -hmm. He can make his own decisions. He could have voted no. He could have voted no. But I guess if we're going to stay on the subject for a second, is do I believe that they should have raised dues? Probably, yeah, we needed to raise dues. They haven't yes. gone up in 20 years, but not the way yes. that we did it. Correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for raising dues. Don't, I hope nobody gets that different. And I've, I've actually said that on, I've commented that on a few posts on Instagram that, Look, we need to up the dues, but you don't make up for 20 years in one month. Mm -hmm. So you've got to, it's got to be an incremental increase over several years to get us to where we need to be. You determine where we need to be in like three or five years and you take that difference and you split it up and you do it each year. So then mm -hmm. people know, and, and like me, I'm probably going to go ahead and get my life membership because it's about to go up crazy. So I need to get it now while I can. All right. So backing way up, did you grow up shooting and hunting anything like that? Yeah. So I grew up in, anyone doesn't know, I live in lower, the lower peninsula of Michigan. So I grew up in a hunting outdoor family, not necessarily did, um, 
my father and I go out and hunt all the time, but it was more that I was taken along by my uncle. And I'm very thankful for him to taking me out year after year, weekend after weekend. Even if we didn't see anything, we got to spend some quality time. Uh, I lost him a couple years ago due to a health issue. But uh, mm. there's always good memories of going out, sitting there. Typically, most of the time, hit myself falling asleep in the deer blind. But uh, always a good time. Um, and it was always a good thing to go up. Get, go up and if he got a deer, one of his brothers got one. It was always fun standing around and... Uh, you know, reminiscing about the stories. Right. A lot of times it's just being out in the, in the woods. Mm -hmm. So what were your, uh, what were you using to hunt with rifle uh, or shotgun? Um, where archery? we live, we have, we can't use rifle calibers other than the 40, uh, the 450 Bushmaster down here where I live. So it was mostly shotguns, um, mostly 12 gauges. Yeah. That's what we were using when I was growing up too, with shotguns. So when did you shoot your first um, pistol? When did I shoot my first pistol? Probably, oh, now you're going to make me think. Probably when I was 22. I never really, I didn't oh. shoot. Yeah, we didn't have pistols growing up necessarily because we, not that I, w I didn't think we owned any, but I never shot one until I became, actually got my concealed carry. So no one brought me up shooting pistols. It was always, you know, 22 rifles or the shotguns. We'd get the throwers out and th shoot them in the, on family's property. Okay. Now what, so, all right. So then you grew up, you became an adult, turned 21. At some point you decided to get your concealed carry. Why was that? Um, I guess it was a little bit of culture at the time. A lot of things had started to change. Um, you know, in the, the political scene and in the, just in the world in general, um, you know, I'd been married already. So I was like, well, I need to protect my family. So I'm going to go out and get a pistol, um, and then carry it on a daily basis. So, but I, I guess it was maybe a little bit of online, not pressure, but a lot of, I went, I got a lot of information online before I even made the decision, like a lot of YouTube videos. A lot of information that I digested before deciding to go go through that process. Okay. So you got your concealed carry. Um, at what point did you find competition shooting? Mm, so that was, when did I find that? I started, I got my member number in the end of 2020. So probably in 2019, near the end of 2019, I had listened to a podcast with Scott Jedlinski and I want to say Tim Heron. They were on a podcast together and um, I'd been into the tactical kind of side of things and, you know, the self-defense kind of stuff. And then depending on who was talking, you would hear some of these competition shooter names and Tim was one of those and Ben stuck out. Um, so then I started following Tim and learned more about competition shooting and eventually decided, well, this is what I want to do. So how many years was it between getting your concealed carry and 2019? Two years, maybe a year and a half. Oh, okay. Years. Oh, so not long at all. Right. Okay. So when you say tactical, you, you just mean like self-defense tactical or. Um, yeah, a little bit self-defense, the, uh, a little bit of, you know, the, I guess I would call it more, there's the other instructors out there, just, you know, firearms proficiencies instructors who go out and teach like, um, 
like Scott Jedlinski did, Aaron Cowan of Sage Dynamics, a lot of those, I'd call them tactical, but I guess they're just not performance-based shooting training, but they have some experience either through police or military service. I got you. But I wouldn't say okay. it's, they weren't teaching tactics. Let me put my air quotes up. Right. The, the audio listeners, tactics. <laughs> right. So, and that's where I go back to. So mostly self-defense type tactics per se. Right. Yeah. If we're going to put it on yeah. any category. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So two years later, you find, you find out about practical shooting. Mm-hmm. Is USPSA the only thing you've shot? Um, I have shot a few outlaw matches um, purely because uh, I took a Tim Heron class at one point. And after that class, there was a couple of cla- um, matches at this cl- at this one range that I went to, which I knew the people who ran it. So I was like, okay, I'll go. It wasn't necessarily the closest range to go shoot at, but it was USPSA-like. It wasn't – it was guys who shot USPSA and IDPA, but they didn't want to be affiliated with anybody, so they ran their – ish match so you'd have a couple rules from here and a couple rules from here okay so did it allow you to did they allow you to load on the move yeah it was a practical shooting like a complete practical shooting match but they just didn't want to be uh officially affiliated with either of the sports okay because i i feel like that's the only thing really missing in idpa is the fact that you, I, I'm not, I don't mean loading on the move. I mean, shooting on the move. You know, mm-hmm. I think they need to institute some exceptions because even in a self-defense situation, you don't necessarily want to be a, a sitting target. You know, you may need to shoot and move. So I feel like it should be incorporated into that. I feel like if they did that, then that, that would just progress them a little bit more. Oh, yeah. And like at this first outlaw match I went to, we got to shoot out of cars and it was it was really fun. They had some beat up old cars. Oh, yeah. So we're shooting through, you know, busted out windshield. Well, the windshields are all gone, but, you know, shooting through the windshield or maybe the the windows. Um, it, was, it was kind of fun. Yeah, that stuff is fun. I went <laughs> I don't mean to tell a sto- story, but I will. Mm-hmm. I went through a school where you started in the front seat of a vehicle and you were holstered. Mm-hmm. And they had a pop-up target that popped up right at your car door window. Literally just, it was laying on the ground and you just sitting there hanging onto the steering wheel like you're at a stoplight. And the start of that scenario was when that target presented itself, game on. So you had to unbuckle, shoot, go through the window on the opposite side, and then engage a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so that that stuff is fun. Mm-hmm. I'm right there with you with that. And that that's more self-defense tactical stuff there. Yeah. So I'm with you. Now, have you, have you shot any actual IDPA matches? No, I keep, I keep talking. Those match directors are still my friends. And I tell them, it's like, I need to go shoot this major match with you guys. It's called who's your daddy, which is, I want to say about an hour but well, it's spelled Hoosier, like like Indiana Hoosier. Right, Indiana. Right. Yeah. But it's it's in Michigan. It's in Sturgis, Michigan. But it's it's about an hour and a half, maybe an hour and forty five minutes away from me. And this would be the only reason I'd go shoot it is with shoot it with some friends. But so I haven't shot any real IDPA. But it's on the list, but it's not that serious to actually go make it happen. Right. It's not a priority. Right. I, I do enjoy IDPA, but again, I there I've 
the people where I go and shoot, they put together some good, uh, some very good stages. So they're always fun and fun to shoot, but <clears throat> I just wish they would expand the abilities just a little bit. Now you mentioned that you took a class from Tim Heron. Have you taken any others? Yep. So I've taken two classes with Tim and I've also taken before that I took two classes with uh, Steve Fisher of Sentinel Concepts. And those classes, the Steve classes were a handgun diagnostics kind of class, like learning what you can do with your sights. Um, and it was kind of like a 25 and yard, 25 yard and in kind of class. So we we're on a static line working, you know, three, five, seven, 10, 15, 25, um, kind of building out some bad habits and shooters and kind of watching what the sights or the red dot are telling you about your grip or or whatnot so it was those steve classes were very fundamental yet very informative at my current at that current level because it then helped me kind of go into shooting uspsa a little bit knowing about shot calling or watching the sights or seeing the sights move and where they can kind of inf uh, impact and change where you're we're going to hit on that target. So you have more of an idea of what your, um, what your hits are going to look like on paper. Gotcha. <clears throat> now, did you start in open? No. So I started USPSA. I, my first match was the October of 2020. So I like, I joined USPSA at late night, tw night, 2019 didn't shoot a whole match because of COVID until late of 2020. Um, and I started straight and carry optics because I'm not, I was like, I, I want to shoot a red dot. That's all I want to shoot. Um, not that I couldn't shoot irons. Uh, it was just not my game. I couldn't, okay. I still can't see irons very well, even with these super thick glasses that I wear. <laughs> I'm just like red dot for me only. And it, it's honestly kept me, it's kept me encouraged because shooting irons would be very discouraging. I feel for at least for my vision and what I know I have right. to see, what I can see. It's just like, I don't want to go through struggles of trying to shoot irons and then finding dot life and be like, Oh yeah, I can see. And I can actually shoot targets fast. <laughs> there you go. So what was your first gun and, and sight combo? So my first gun, well, when I, I guess I'll say this when I first got to carry, um, concealed carry, I, I started with a Glock 19 and then I figured out that Glock 19s are too small for my hands. Um, I just couldn't get enough good grip because my, I have long wide palms. So I went to a Glock 17 for my first USPSA gun, a Glock 17 Gen 5 MOS. And I started with a Trijicon RMR on top of that. And then eventually okay. I moved to a 17 with a C, uh, an SRO, uh, 5 MOA SRO. So you basically did the same thing I did, minus the gun, but the optic mm -hmm. change was exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Uh I went from an RMR to an SRO and the window size was like, wow, I can see so much more. Yeah. <laughs> it's so much more forgiving. Yeah. And well, that, cause then I was able to, I was smart enough. I got a competition gun and my carry gun stayed the same. So I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to have one go from a concealed carry holster, get unloaded before the match and then get put into a gun rug for the match. So it was kind of a, a nicety for a while. Cause they were both stock triggers for a long time. So I, okay. shooting, so I shot stock clock triggers for a while. And then when I got the real competition gun, I was able to start messing with aftermarket triggers in my guns. Uh, okay. Gun. So how long did you shoot carry optics before you switched over to open? 
Um, I started shooting open in January of 2023. Oh, so, so just this year. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you did a full like two seasons of shooting your carry optics gun before switching over. Yep. And what was the, what, what spurred you into switching to open? So I don't know if hopefully people have heard of this show. Do you remember the TV show hot shots with that followed like Max, JJ, oh, I'm sorry, Max, Casey, Jerry Michalik, um, Clint Upchurch, um, back on the outdoors channel. So back in the day, there was this TV show called, um, hot shots and you know we followed max winning steel challenge this is probably back 2013 2014 era okay. so he it was he one year he won the steel challenge the pro-am and um handgun nationals all in one year so he won the triple he was the first person to win the triple crown at least according to this tv show and then the next year he won the world shoot in florida so you followed them through the like the seasons to progress and through all these overarching shows you can find it on youtube um season one through season four that's all they made okay but, but watching casey shane coley max michelle jerry mitchlick all shoot open guns was like that's what i eventually want to do um and i really didn't think i was going to be able to actually afford having an open gun until i met enough people in you know end of last year beginning of this year that kind of made it possible for me to get into open so it's it was it's been a interesting endeavor you mean as in like sponsorships type stuff well just connections like people at the range i know who you know they gave me information on like use this load with this powder um mm. and then actually being fit you know being able to realize that i could afford to get an open gun built i got gotcha. you okay so so your your gun was brand new mm -hmm. yep and brand what are new. you shooting um, so it is a Chile custom gunworks gun. So pretty much all the parts are Chile custom gunworks. I have a binary comp, engineering comp, a KKM barrel and EGW internals in it. Um, yeah, and it, it, it's a top. It runs like a sewing machine after I figured out that I needed to trim down one of the safeties because <laughs> I was always activating the manual safety on either the other mm. side. So as soon as I got the the weak side safety trimmed down, I didn't have any more of those kind of issues. So okay. So, so the gun has not had any issues. It was more of user error interface kind of stuff in the beginning. All right. So I got to ask you the one question that all open shooters need to be asked: How much do your magazines cost? <laughs> so <laughs> wait, let's see. The big sticks are like one sixty, one seventy. And Good then Lord. the the 140s are got to be like 140, 150 or something like that. Man, before COVID hit, you were paying for as much for one big stick as I was paying for a case of ammo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Holy cow, dude. But the trick is you get um, Black Friday sales. That's the trick to make magazines cheaper, which I did. This. That's racist. Yeah. So the day after Thanksgiving sales, <laughs> the, the national holiday. Um, but uh, no, I'm not. Be, I'm being for real with you, Dave. It's the fact that like you can get the base pads for like a quarter of the price. 
Um, the tubes, you act, if because I use Infinity tubes, uh, which is blasphemy. Most people are just like, buy MBX, <laughs> which well, I would agree with, too. But my builder, you know, the guy who helped me figure out the gun was, all right, this is what we use. We use the Graham Spring Follower. We use an Infinity tube and a Terran base pad. And okay. so, and you saved good money on Infinity's website one time a year, the Black Friday sale. That's it. Mm, so okay. The, so they become not as bad as they do street cost. I got gotcha. you. So are you going to be hitting up them again on the day after Thanksgiving sale? <laughs> right now, probably not. I have four. I, I have enough magazines that I'm comfortable with. I have four 140s and two big sticks. So it, it, that gets me through two stages without actually having to reload like my, all my magazines. So I'm so when you see these Instagram posts from like Christian and other people, like 20 magazines sitting there, I mean, what goes through your mind? Um, can, can I borrow one of those? <laughs> <laughs> but like you greedy bastard, give me a couple. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, and honestly, I wish I had more, but I don't need any more. The thing is, I'd love to have practice mags and match mags. I currently just have mags. So I would like to have, cause I've got my dry fire mags taken care of, but I would like to have mags dedicated just for practice sessions and then some just for matches because they do get abused and you don't necessarily like to drop them all the time either on rock or concrete or wherever you're shooting got to conserve and reserve those uh investments yeah and i mean i am a i'm a practical guy mm -hmm. so i am one of those that if i'm carrying a gun then my competition gun so i all i shoot are canics mm -hmm. i carry a canic i shoot canics in competition that's what i do I try to keep my rifles the same way, keep everything the same. If I'm going to buy a gun for personal use, then I'm going to use it in competition as well. I don't have, I don't, I don't like to think that I have double of stuff, mm -hmm. but I have those, um, uh, those cushion squares that interlock in my garage. So I don't have to worry about, my magazines falling on the ground during dry fire and getting beat up. So mm -hmm. I just intermix all of my, my mags. If I need mags, I just buy a new gun. All right. Get two go. or that's... three more right there. Yeah. Right. And that's always an investment. <laughs> I will say, yeah. um, I was very fortunate and I was able to lay carpet down in my concrete basement. You know, we got a super, like someone was given, I think it was a family member. It's like, Hey, we're, we're changing carpet colors in the house. Do you want this carpet? They're like, I know where it came from. So I'm like, sure. I'm like, yeah. So we yeah. got it laid super cheap. My dry fire space is all carpeted. That's like the only section nice. in the basement that is. So it doesn't matter where I run around in. It's I drop a mag, it's going to be safe. But I use those double alpha dry fire mags. So Oh, okay. So But those really don't like concrete either. So mm. but I'm okay with throwing a $20 piece of plastic away. Not necessarily sure. spending 40 bucks on a base pad that I have to replace because it's cracked now. Right. I'm, I'm with you. You definitely want to ding up the uh, the lips of your magazines on concrete. So, yeah, I hear you completely. What what actually? I guess what I was trying to get at earlier too is what drew you to open. I mean, you'd been shooting carry optics for a couple of years. Was there something about it specifically that made you go, "That's what I want to do"? Um. Well, let me. I'll put it back to this: is the fact that I did watch that show, and it's like I said, I wanted to do this. It was because it's fast. They're super cool looking, like uh, 
the technology behind him was nice. I didn't know at the time when I first started watching that show, but it definitely it sparked an interest in me. And then when I started shooting with a bunch of open shooters, I was like, why am I shooting? I, I mean, one, I was beating most of them with a carry optics gun and minor, but I'm like, what happens if I really had an open gun to play hardball? Right. So then the competitiveness in me is like, I need an open gun. <laughs> okay. Are you happy with the, with the move? Oh, absolutely. Um, like as soon as I knew I was getting an open gun last, like at, in 2022, like I was like, I figured out how to afford it. And I was like, all right, let's do it. I've got my frame. I had no ambition to shoot carry optics. I had no drive mm. to want to practice um, at all. I was just like, I'm ready for open. Um, so you, like last year's major match performances were terrible because I was in the wrong mindset for that. So going to open was my, my dream and it kind of stifled performance last year because of it. I gotcha. Okay. All because you knew you were going to open. Open and just that's what I wanted to shoot it and I didn't have I couldn't the gun couldn't be done soon enough, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, do you have overnight fixing or overnight finishing on that? <laughs> like shipping? <laughs> well, I knew it was gonna take time. I my guy the guy who helped me was uh he finished it like in December, had to get it coated in January, but it was uh I was just ready, but there, but he didn't have like a backup gun I could shoot, but I wasn't quite ready yet either. Cause I still had to get up, gather all the, the necessary like powders and bullets. Cause that's a whole different swing from shooting carry optics to shooting like open major loads, learning a little yeah. bit. I'm very fortunate to be friends with like top shooters, like Andrew Hyder and Chris Galnett, um, who kind of were able to help me weed through some of the BS on stuff, even though Chris will shoot blue bullets or his open gun and, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm about to do that at a class here coming up, but uh, <laughs> it's a little sacrilege. <laughs> Plus, you you had to get a holster for it. I mean, you gotta you're changing your whole setup. Yeah, so. yeah. That was def. Luckily enough, that wasn't as difficult as I thought. Although race holsters are expensive, so they're pretty much yeah. I, you you kind of need to find one you like. The problem is the one I really wanted was never in stock until this year. But I'm not gonna go spend another three hundred dollars on a race holster because I've already got one. <laughs> Yeah, those things are no joke. They are not cheap. Um, and I want to say the cheaper ones are, you know, still $150. Yeah. So they're not they're not well, cheap. And that and double alpha knows for double alpha was not my first choice. Not that I'm unhappy with my choice. I couldn't get the Everglades holster that I really wanted because it was never in stock. But the double alpha is priced reasonably, but it's not like you can just go sell it today and get some of your money back out of it and go buy something else. It's, it's okay. So while we're talking optics, what are your thoughts on limited optics? Would that, it's a 2011 frame. Would that ever be something that would interest you? I may or may not be trying to get one. <laughs> not that I would leave open division because open is like right. where my heart is, but like, I could shoot a Glock in limited optics. I could shoot a SIG P320 in limited optics, but it's not the same trigger. It's not the same magazines. Like the investment on the 2011 platform is already big enough in my point at, at, at this stage already. That's like, just get a 2011 shoots, you know, same magazines pretty much yeah. can run, you know, the same load other than, you know, swapping some powder down. And so it's relatively the same kind of setup. You know, you don't need to change a holster mag pouches, anything you can just, switch guns out and shoot limited optics currently. Okay. Now, 
when um, I guess we'll talk about the Michigan sectional. Mm-hmm. Oh, but wait, you guys held that before limited optics became a thing. Correct. Yep. We, we had to host that in April due to some scheduling conflicts around um, our home range. Right. So it was, I don't, but it was towards the end of April, wasn't it? Yeah. I was like 15th and 16th. Okay. Yeah. You were just like two weeks shy of <laughs> limited optics going live. Yeah. Okay. How is limited optics um, catching on where you're at? I would say locally, you might see at the different local matches I go to five to 10, maybe 15 people at max shooting. Well, probably five to 10 people max. Um, the majors I've shot this year um, since May, since I did shoot the Buckeye Blast, which was the first major match to ever allow limited optics. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a good showing. And every major match like Kentucky that I've shot, um, the Rhine Rocks Charity Blast, Area 5, they had decent numbers. And I, um, it's funny enough, most of the people I've seen at each match, I've seen at every match shooting limited optics. So that's kind of cool. They, uh, So they're being consistent. Mm-hmm. Especially at the major match level. Okay. Now, your thoughts, should it be combined and just be allowed into carry optics, or do you think it should be its own thing? Mm. Spicy. It's not spicy. I I know. So when we first (laughs) talked about this, you know, back in 2021, when people first started spouting out about, you know, single action only in carry optics, I was like, dead set, no. Now that I've been in the sport long enough and realized that skill matters more than equipment, um, yes, carry optics and limited optics should be combined adding the things that, but I think there needs to be some tweaks here, right? So okay. to combine them, you get rid of frame mounted thumb rests. So you can only have mm. what's allowed in carry optics. You can have slide stop replacement thumb rests. Um, you allow magwells for the other guns that didn't have magwells and carry optics. Um, now do also- you put a limit on the size of the magwell. No, because it, so you just like put like those guns in the limited optics, but you get rid of thumb rest, like the frame mounted. Okay. So you're changing your, so you're changing your, so basically you're taking carry optics and just allowing a different type of trigger. You're allowing the magwell and not adding the rules in that would allow like the thumb rest and stuff like that. Frame mounted thumb rest. Right, yeah. I'm fine with like a shooting sports innovations or a TiVo, stuff like that is fine because it's allowed in carry optics currently. Um, but I would also try to make carry optics a low cap, like to change what we think of carry optics into a low cap division or a 15 round or a stock kind of division. So they're different. So you'd put currently what's carry optics into limited optics with those changes, but then you add like a low cap dot division. So people can be like, well, I'm going to shoot 10 rounds here, make this even more challenging, but gives it some differences than just limited optics currently. If you combine it with carry optics and then you limit the capacity, do you think there's going to be a lot of feedback that would be negative for that? Well, let me rephrase that. So I would add a new, I would, I would add a new division essentially and make it a low, have a limited optics slash carry optics that we currently have now. 
Okay. And then add that lower capacity division. Like a production optics. Yeah, essentially like what Ipsit kind of has. Okay. Because, hmm. and it would give some, it, and this is, my, I guess, my problem when we in, initiated limited optics, is it wasn't different than open, it wasn't different than carry optics, it didn't have its own identity other than 2011s. Right. I feel that some divisions to have purpose need an identity. Um, like revolver is always going to be revolver, you know. Correct. It has its identity. Single stack is a single stack gun, even though well, it's a twenty, it's a nineteen eleven. Even though I think you should be able to allow like single stack other single stack forty fives into the game, if because currently it's only a sing, it's only a nineteen eleven division by its rule set. But right. you know, but people might like shooting their single stack forty fives like the God the. Now I blinked on the gun. It was in my brain, and it's gone. That's I guess that's my life. Um, <laughs> but stuff like that, like production has iron-sighted low capacity. That's its identity. Carry optics had an identity. Um, limited optics just didn't feel like that. So I think if you're going to – if we amalgamate them and change and we add that new division, it's got to have its own identity of that lower capacity with a dot. Yeah, but I feel like that's not going to get any traction with shooters because why when I can just put in my magazine and shoot carry optics at a higher capacity? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. we already, we're already having issues with production and, and lack of participation because it being a, a low capacity division. I think if you merged like that idea of the dot with a low cap into production, because truly that's what a production gun is nowadays. You know, you could have every everything comes with a red dot. You know, it has a capacity for a magwell. Mm -hmm. um, if you turn it into a low capacity division with a dot or irons, I think people would shoot it because it helps the friends in New York and California <laughs> and. Um, but uh, it helps our friends in our restricted capacity states, and it adds something to a complexity to be like another challenge into stage planning. Because it seems with carry optics now, you get a bunch of or open shooters, match directors get lazy and decide, okay, I shoot a big stick, I get thirty rounds plus one in my gun. I'm going to design every stage to to essentially screw everyone else. Or carry optics, I only have to worry about one reload. They don't think about right. the single stack major guys or the production guy who's got to shoot standing reloads to shoot a viable stage plan. So I think having that other division would help people go back to a lower capacity and understand the difficulties of lower round counts and the challenge that it provides in stage planning. Now, what are your thoughts then on like the survey they just the survey that just went out about changing production to fifteen rounds? Um, I'm actually, I'm for fifteen rounds. I was even for I make it too. fit make it fit the box. But then you've got the arms race of the CZP10F can hold nineteen rounds comparatively to a Glock hold seventeen. Fifteen's um, right. a good number. It aligns itself with Ipsic. So you're you're getting people ready for the world shoot or international matches, but it's easy. It's yes, you still have to count rounds. I mean, honestly, being an RO on a stage and counting rounds is not so difficult as people make it sound to be and enforceable. It's definitely if somebody shoots to eleven in or twelve, I should say, in production and going to slide or not even going to slide lock, 
then it's a he said, she said kind of thing. It can be long as unless more than one RO is paying attention to it. But it definitely is not impossible to enforce. Yeah, and I think I think at local matches, I think it would it would depend more on your fellow squad mates because you typically only have one guy running in a stage at a local match, mm -hmm. you know, and he's shooting the same squad. But at a major where you have multiple ROs running a stage, it shouldn't be hard for one of those three people to be paying attention to that. So I don't think that's difficult to add in. And I like a straight 15 versus the box because it puts everybody at the same number of rounds. Yes, I agree. It, it, it puts on a level playing field. Um, exactly. It, it just makes it a lot easier, especially for chrono or equipment checks. You know, it definitely makes everything streamlined. And I think yeah, that's what we need. We don't need these obscure rules or one-offs. We need these, a concrete set that we can all stick to. And it's, that's why we all shoot USPSA. We have a rule book and a rule set that we can go from, New York to California and shoot the same match. Yeah, agree. <clears throat> so you're you're talking about having a high capacity, other than open, another high capacity optic division, a low capacity optic division, and then whatever else there is beyond that. Right. So we'd have like, in my guess, dream world, we'd have PCC um, open division because, you know, it's a catch all for everything. Right. Um, we'd have limited optics. I'll call it limited optics, you know. Okay. Currently what we have with carry optics. A low capacity um, iron. We'll call that production optics. Right. Production optics. Even I would, I would even throw production in there. I mean, it might whittle out yep. iron sight shooters, but you could still play in that game because I wouldn't require. I would feel that you shouldn't have to be required to use a dot or irons, but you'd still be in the same kind of playing field. You're stuck to the limited round count. Um, you're always going to have, rev but I would try to put revolver L10 single stack into like a, a classic division. Okay. So you, you try to, I'd be, I'd go ahead. I'm sorry. You would try to appease everybody and fix the rules to make it a fair, even playing field between the, the firearms. But because a revolver is distinctly different than, you know, a, a single stack, but it, it roughly is the same. You still have to do the same amount of reloads on a stage, but one's a magazine, one's a wheel gun. Right. And I've, I mean, I've been beaten shooting carry optics. I've been beaten by a, a revolver grandmaster who was third in the nation last year at a lo at local matches. So yeah. He's no, he's no slouch, but he, <laughs> no, everyone picks on revolver shooters, but they, they have to be good at their fundamentals. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they're just at a disadvantage, you know, if, mm -hmm. If they're at the GM level, then they've got their reloads down. They're quick. So they're going to beat a lot of people, but they're still at a disadvantage, you know, mm -hmm. with capacity. So they're having to reload many more times. So it's a, it's a lot more stage planning for them. Mm -hmm. A lot more strategy. But uh, I'll be honest. I, I think limited 10 should just go away. I agree. Completely. I there is zero. I've been tracking that. And there is zero participation in that. It's ridiculous. Yeah, like even at Area 5, I think we had one one shooter last this year that I tracked. Um, I uh, see him at a couple majors now, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not worth it when you can shoot production or 
something else. Right. Yeah. There's no, um, there is zero, um, motivation to, to shoot that division. And then the other thing is all people are doing is using it to collect another national title or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Just like, uh, especially with this year's Na- iron sight nationals, you have limited and limited 10 together with production and revolver and single stack. No one's shooting L 10 because they're all going to go shoot limited. They're limited shooters. You have to keep, if you're going to have L 10 around that nationals needs to be a different time than regular limited nationals. Now I don't, I don't know if there were any um, major matches last weekend. I looked on the, uspsa website and there were none Mm -hmm. there there may have been something but it wasn't on the uspsa website so the weekend before i updated all of my numbers for all of the majors that have been listed on the uspsa website and of all the majors that have been shot this year 62 people have participated in limited 10 for a for a participation percentage of 0.69 percent yeah, so that's, that's I just, about where it should be. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there that I mean, single stack isn't doing a whole lot better at two point six one, and revolver one point zero nine. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, revolver, like you said, though, it is unique. I don't want to get rid of revolver, mm-hmm. but there has to be. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know how you do it. I'm. I'm not that involved in the sport per se to have this sat is, down and figured all that out this is where you need like the jay slater you need alex bakken you need w- rick wolf you need michael pogey well i don't know does pogey shoot revolver he might shoot limited i don't know anyway you need like the top guys who shoot revolver in icor and uspsa to come and sit down at the table and talk about what they need in a shooting sport because um one of my clubs my new home club actually shoots I-Core um, the day before they shoot USPSA. So mm. there is a few shooters who shoot I-Core, but it's definitely a, I've even talked to that match director. It's a different game all entirely. Like, it's a niche, really. Mm-hmm. Well, besides that, it's just revolvers. It's the accuracy demand is higher than yeah. like IDPA. Like it's, it's even more detrimental than a, like a down one. Well, and that's what I like about Icor. That's what I like about Bianchi. Um, I like those because we don't, I, I don't feel like unless you're shooting minor, there is no real premium for accuracy. If you're shooting a major power factor firearm in USPSA, you don't have to, I, I, don't, I hate saying it like this because I, I don't mean to come off um, the way it's going to sound, but you don't have to be accurate as long as you're inside that C zone, which is huge. That's all you have to do. Mm-hmm. So, and the gun isn't, it, it might be violent, but it's with the compensator and everything else. It's you're staying on target. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I would like to see a, something that would create a little bit more, that's why I like I like these matches where there's no shoots and there's partial targets and there's this and there's that because 
It takes people out of what they're used to, which is practical accuracy, and actually puts them into precision shooting with a pistol. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that is part of the sport, and I'd like to see more of that. That's why I like the actual sliding movers. You know, make people focus on what they're doing and and know how to engage a target. Right. Like looking at the Greater Pittsburgh Gun Club, who just hosted the Western PA sectional. Those were pretty cool. Um, Tim, uh, yeah. Tanfo Timmy, who did his PCSL match the other weekend with his swinging slide, the sliding swinger. That was cool. Um, yeah, we need Dipsic. more. Mm-hmm. long as my thing is you've got to build them consistent. And I know Jason at targets USA does. He comes up with consistent things. Um, and I like to see those more in, in different matches. It adds a skill level. It's something you're, you don't, if you don't see it at a club match, you know, that's okay. But if you see it at a major match and it's cool and it's super repeatable, that like that puts that back in someone's brain saying, hey, I need to go back and shoot that match again. Or I'm going to tell my friends and it's just going to be like Dragon's Cup. It's going to blow up. Every match is going to be sold out again because of the cool things they do. Dragon's Cup is so right. successful because they had good stages and they executed it well um, in the very beginning. And now it's just growing and the matches at busting it seems because right. it, it sells out in two minutes. It's like carry optics nationals. Well, that match was sold out really before it even opened. <laughs> yeah. Which, which is a problem. And I mean, mm-hmm. I've talked to plenty of people about the issues with nationals, that nationals filling up super fast. Yeah. And I, I, I guess they had like 700 people wanting to shoot that match. Yeah. And so it, 200 it su- people did not get a chance. Sorry, go ahead. It, and it sucks is because it's either you add days onto the match, which people got to ROs got to take off more time off work or, or just to be there. I mean, a lot of ROs, you know, most of them who work nationals are retired. Um, myself, I am an RO who travels to major matches who is not retired. <laughs> so I have to take vacation time to go work these matches. Right. Um, so it's kind of hard to get the new blood in the sport that when it requires you to be gone a week plus, especially going to Talladega, if we have to go down to Talladega. So it's, it's that or you restrict it to only X people are getting in. And if the match fills up because of performance, that's cool. But it sucks is because this, it's 40 plus percent of our sport is carry optics. You, and you yeah. only have so many slots. And if they're all gone before, you know, open registration happens, what does that say that about our, to our membership? We don't really want you or you, we only take the best of the best. I mean, it's, if it was truly we only want the top level shooters and it's a real true sport, that's cool. But this is an everyman day's hobby slash sport. So we want yes. we need to involve everybody from the, the C D class shooter to the grandmaster and the national champions. Yeah. I mean B class reigns supreme. Mm-hmm. If you look at the numbers for level two matches and above, all the way across the board, typically your biggest division is B class. So why would you want to exclude them is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You're giving them that, that experience to want to continue and be the next master, grandmaster, national champion. Right. Well, and it might honestly, B-class might be the biggest competitive division purely because it's very hard to get out. It, it's not difficult to get into B-class after you figure out how to shoot their sport. But getting out of B-class is an t- entirely different thing. <laughs> like, right. It seems it, like once you get out of B class, you've kind of figured it out and you can keep progressing. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and like you know, and depending on the classifiers your match sets up or major match uh, performance, you by the time someone typically gets at a B class and they're performing at that B class level or above in major matches, you know they're just waiting for enough major match points or the numbers to align for you to, for it to count because they figured out the sport. They've just shot enough shot out classifiers or you know burnt you know it's burnt to the crisp and you like. You would never shoot it like this in a, in a match, but it's a classifier, so you're just going to hope that you hit all these targets correctly. Right. Yeah, you're, you're trying to burn it down, so I get what you're saying. All right, so you haven't been in the sport very long. You've only been in it for coming up on three years. It's only been two and a half years. Yep. So you very quickly went from new to the sport to being a match director for a sectional match. Just about two years and what, six months, roughly. Yep. Mm-hmm. So why, what was it that made you want to do that in such a short period of time? Well, that's that's a great question. So I guess it goes back to me even becoming in January 21, no, February 21. I took an RO class, just getting into the sport in October, got an RO class, started learning the rules to be a better competitor. Okay. A year later, became a CRO, but at yeah. that point, I <clears throat> I came into a group of good individuals running our club, um, Brooklyn Sportsman's Club, and I ran into a good group of people like my good friends today, like Ken. His name's Ken Lane, Walt Pagel, his wife Savetta, um, a bunch of good people who set up our local matches and was like, "Hey, you can hang out with us," um, and then you start getting involved. You become a club member. Uh, uh, being invested into the the, the club, being involved. Um, and they're like, so I shot the 2022 Michigan sectional. You know, I was starting to become part of the group. And they're like, you know, my buddy Ken was running the Michigan sectional in Area 5 that year. And the next year he had Area 5 for sure. And they all of them asked me, like, are you interested? You, you know, you, you seem very involved or want to be involved. I'm like, yeah, I'm just part of my nature. My mother, you know, raised me to be involved. She was always doing things with us. If it was related to scouts or church or any extracurriculars, she was always involved with us. So it wasn't like we were doing it on our own. And I think I learned from that to an aspect of if I'm going to do something, I'm going to jump head feet, head and feet first, you know, be fully involved, fully incorporated and want to give back and volunteer. So they were like, well, do you want to run the sectional? Because it's going to be a lot of work on Ken to do area five and the Michigan sectional again. And I was like, yeah, I'm interested. So <laughs> I kind of got voluntold in a way <laughs> to be the match director, but I don't regret it at all. It was a excellent experience of learning. Um, and I had never really been a match director uh, by myself of a club level match either. So I went from being a part of a group wow. running club matches to you're running a major match um, as the match director, the guy who's in charge before everything goes down, you need to coordinate everything. Um, I was very lucky. My friend Ken, uh, he uh, he did help a lot. He had a lot of contacts um, around the club that I was able to use and I um, to my advantage to make it a lot easier on myself than starting from scratch. Well, and I was going to say, it didn't sound like the guy left the area. He just couldn't run both matches. So you still had, you know, support from him. So you could always turn and turn to him and ask questions and you know in that regard you still had to do the legwork but at least 
you know, you had someone with experience that you could turn to and ask questions and get them answered. Oh, absolutely. It seemed like we were on the phone two, three nights a week um, talking about the match or and, and through that process, we were already good friends. We've become even better friends. Now we traveled a bunch of local matches together because um, it's just we enjoy each other's company. Oh, that's cool. So uh, friendship has developed. Mm hmm. And, and I'm, if I can put this in a better way, is everyone in that club is a lot older than I am. Like, I'm going to be 29 here at the in in about a month, whenever this drops, probably in a couple of weeks from then. But so I'm a lot younger. I'm like half the age as most of the people I hang out with at the local club level. So they see that energy and drive, and it it revitalized them a little bit too to be like, okay, we're not completely lost here. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, you'll be turning 29 in September then. Yep. And I'll be turning 57 in October. So I, I'm here we are. Yep. <laughs> uh, okay. So I'm curious then mm -hmm. with as new as you are to the sport and being the match director for a major match like that, have you learned or determined that you like a certain theme for a major match? Well, I like what I like, I guess. So at when we would run Brooklyn, I hope even, so. even at club matches at Brooklyn Sportsman's Club or BSC, um, they were not easy. They were challenging. There was far shots. We only pretty we owned four large poppers and never used them. We had thirty plus mini popper Ipsic mini poppers on on the bays. So shooting a twenty five yard mini popper was very common for us. So okay, challenging and technical are not words in my vocabulary. That's just a regular club match. Um, so I guess my vision is very skewed on what makes good stages. And the word op options on a stage don't really mean anything to me because there needs to be true viable options, not left or right. It's, ooh, I could cut a complete position out. That's an option. Or stuff like that. But um, right. I, I definitely like a mix of stages. I like... Far targets, far poppers, far paper, fast swingers, bobbers. Bobbers are challenging too. Um, they can they, be. They need to make more sense though. Like uh, from looking at Carry Optics Nationals, it was the same kind of thing. It was paper, paper, like a bobber that is kind of bobbed forever with no real options of taking something in between. It was just like you shoot the paper, you shoot the activator, you shoot the paper, and then you end on the bobber. But shooting a 30 yard bobber. Um, the report is always kind of fun in my opinion, um, because it's a challenge because you're losing so much time on the upper, the down dwell, uh, of the bobber, but, um, interesting activator sequences, but I really like things that are reliable too, because I come from a major match background of like, I think I've, I've worked so many majors now. That's all I care about. Kind of really in a sense is it's gotta be repeatable, reliable, and, um, works every time. Because you know you've you've probably been to a club match where something doesn't work, and it's very frustrating on the shooters because the, the prop doesn't work, it doesn't want to activate right, and you're like, "What do we do?" You call the match director, the range master over, and you're like, "You need to make a decision on this." So, repeatable and dependable activators are nice, um, but when it comes to stages, like I like a variety of mix, um, some a little bit of hosing targets, but not necessarily hoser stages. I need some challenges, but. You give people the option of throttle control to hose on some targets and then have to 
be ready for this far piece of paper, a far steel in the same array. Um, but it's definitely, I've, I've been skewed because of what I deal with on a monthly basis of setting up stages or even how I design stages myself. Um, when I sit down and design on SketchUp, uh, most of my stages are not all the same. They get a theme or a flavor in them, but they definitely test skill. They're definitely, as we put it, a shooting match, a shooting stage. Okay. You know Keanu, Sai? Um, I have not met Keanu, but um, I, I know of his name and his, uh, his uh, difficult stages he likes to put on the ground. Yeah, he does. He loves no shoots and partials, and, and I'm okay with that because, again, that goes back to I think we not we need to have not just practical accuracy, but we need to be tested on precision as well. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what I'm hearing from you. Right. You know? And, and to add on to that, like when we would set a no shoot out at our club or even for me, the no shoots got to make sense. It just can't be pilfered with no shoots. Um, but we had a lot of rule club rules to keep for no shoots because we needed to keep bullets from leaving the range ever. Um, if one bullet left our range, we were close. We were going to be shut down because certain wow. of how the direction was of one of our bit, our, some of our bays, they would, okay. there was a go, it would go over a road and could hit a doctor's mm -hmm. office. So if it, if it forbid, heaven forbid, if it left the one side of the range, it wouldn't be as bad, but if it left over the roadside, it would, uh, shut down the whole club and no one likes okay. to see clubs get shut down and turn into, um, you know subdivisions <laughs> yeah that would be horrific all right so i started smiling because you started to touch on something i was going to ask you as a follow-up mm -hmm. and that is so with your sectional match the chile gunworks um sectional mm -hmm. or chile custom gunworks um what was your mix of stages and and I'm only going to use Ipsic as an example. Was it like a three two one, or was it a two two two, or a one? I mean, a one 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 type of a thing, or was there even any consideration for that? Um, well, when it came down to it, we we had just had the rules changed to allow they got rid of the small, medium, and large course, you know, uh, round requirements or no right. position. What was it? what was it minimum or the maximum number of positions. So we got to play around with that. So some of my stages um, got tweaked a little bit on the ground because it was like, Oh, okay, we can add another target here and it's going to be fine. Um, I did. I based my selection more off of match flow than a strict three, two, one or a two, two, two. Okay. Um, I looked at them at like at a more of a time frame limit. Like, so typically a major match, you're going to schedule a 45 minute block for you to shoot this stage as a 12 man squad. My goal is that my staff is going to push you through in 30 minutes and I'm never going to have a backup is was my mate. My most concerning goal was no backups on any stage, even if it was a big stage, like we have a super long wide bay in the back corner at Brooklyn. I want to say it's got to be 30 yards, 35 yards wide and 30 yards deep. So it's big and it's usually the biggest stage to reset. So behind that, you need a technical-ish stage that's going to take some time to reset yet not be super challenging, but still take up the same amount of time as the big bay to reset. But so, and then the stage, in, the next stage behind that, stage six, um, needed to kind of be a burner. You needed to be able to move through that thoroughly. So if you, if there, have a, there would never be a backup, but 
everything you could plan for it too one's going to take a lot longer and then you're going to be you're going to be through the next stage very quickly because it was a fast stage okay so you you're not necessarily a three two one guy you're just a look at the match flow look at your bays and make it work right now i i can say this is i wish i did a little bit different of some stages but i also feel like if i did like a standard stage in one of my bays I'm very much wasting good space for a really good stage. Although I believe there should be standard stages in all matches, yes. But I also felt like if I had a standard stage, it would have I wouldn't have been utilizing the base space as well as well as I could. And I also had a difficult time keep um, getting and keeping staff for the match. So when it came down to the match, we were at the bare minimum of staff needed. Oh so, wow. So it's not like I could have put a double bay in somewhere and had two stages going. So I just had like enough, which was like 30 staff plus my auxiliary people like my range masters and, you know, Mr. Fixit and whatnot. Okay. Was there anything in particular that you learned um, as the match director from that one? Yeah, so always, even though you always want to have more staff, is plan for even more because more people will, things will come up, someone's going to get sick, someone's going to have a death in the family, someone's going to have jury duty. <laughs> um, always oh plan boy. To, yeah, always plan to have an abundance of extra staff, even though you have to accommodate them and hold them in hotels or f food for them. Take in consideration for that. Uh, ask for help but um don't try to set um be prepared like i know some like my club was very for i'm very fortunate with the club that i had at brooklyn sportsman's club we could set up weeks in advance we could start setting up two to three weeks early um on certain bays because all 10 bays that we use for uspsa are gated off they're action bays no one no club members can use them other than for um uspsa steel challenge um three gun so it's not like normal club members could access those bays at any time. So we could start setting up in the beginning of April. We started setting up. And then by the third week of April, everything was up on the ground, ready to go. Um, delegation Did, is definitely a good thing that needs to be <laughs> managed as a match director. Yeah. 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 You, there's only so much you can do. <laughs> well, and right, and I guess my biggest thing was I, I knew what needed to be done as a match director, but the problem was, I didn't write it down to delegate because I knew in the brain what needed to be done, but I didn't have it on paper to give somebody right. a list and say, Hey, please do these things. Cause everyone was gotcha. coming back to me the last two, three days before the match. Hey, what can I do? What do I need to do? And so it was always a back and forth. It wasn't, here's your list. Go do this, please. Gotcha. Come see me when you're done. Right. And that's, I'll give that's, you another list. <laughs> yeah. Or take three people, go split this list up, go do these things. So that's always a, and I, I feel bad because all the help, a lot of the help I got was people who are a lot older than me, like people in their 50s and 60s coming to help put on the match and help me, which I feel really bad of asking someone of that age, you know, that age difference to be like, hey, do you, do you feel comfortable putting up walls today kind of thing? Like, you know, I'm the young guy, so it's like I, I should be able to do this. But truly learning to back off, delegate, and doesn't matter who you're delegating to, long as with it's within their comfort level to do so should be able to do it which i learned that pretty quick i've helped out at the virginia state match mm -hmm. putting it um you know building some stages and a couple of different local matches i've helped with building stages and uh 
but it seems like typically you're only going to get a couple of people and they're typically older because like you said before, they typically have more free time than the younger guys. Mm-hmm. So now did, did you come up with the names for all of your stages? I did. Um, I, I, I got to pick all the names for my stages because, um, I was the match director and this is one of my rights. <laughs> I, I do like your stage four. We don't own any large poppers. Mm-hmm. Oh, everyone was like, <laughs> everyone bitched at area five the year prior. Cause it was so hard and it was all mini poppers. And it's like, I, I was corrected. We own four, but I'm not hauling them out of that shed because they're have they're, they're not like a popper base and a popper. It's a whole, it's all connected. It, it's all bolted together. Right. And then you don't, typically we don't have like a, a golf cart with a trailer to haul it to the, where we want to use it. It's you're carrying it 25 yards deep into a bay and however far it is away from the barn. So I'm like mini poppers. I'll use those, but yeah, you own the ones that were, if you don't watch your fingers, they're going to get pinched off. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've carried a few of those around. Those can be exciting. That's sarcasm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's why everyone should have um, med kits on the range too. right for amputated fingers Mm -hmm. all right now it seems so you started your uspsa career in october of 2020 you became an ro in february of 21 and you started your podcast in february of 21 Mm -hmm. that is correct so what what was the um fuel for the podcast it's a little selfish. Um, it's so I could really talk. <laughs> it was my excuse to talk to really good high level shooters and okay. not feel like I wasted their time. Um, especially at like coming in bottom of middle of C class, you know, I'm a new guy, super enth- enthusiastic about the sport, want to get better, want to train. Um, I needed a way or a niche to be able to commit to document my discoveries through conversation. And I'm always a chatty Kathy. Anyone gets me on the phone. Um, we're spending at least a half hour on the phone talking about something. If it's shooting or it's family, like, you know, it's whatever it is, I'm, I'll talk. So I was able to use the, you know, the ploy of, Oh, it's a podcast. You know, I'll, you know, your information will be out there, but it was really for me to ask questions to develop my own shooting in the beginning. And then I think probably about 10 episodes in, I realized I am not Arik Levy. I do not, not need to try to be Arik Levy. I just need to have a conversation with people and people are going to enjoy it. So it became much more of me asking some questions as if we were on the range, just shooting the shit. Um, but people enjoyed it. It was conversational. It's entertaining to an extent, but it's just, and then it puts the guest at ease truly too. Just like this conversation we're having today. I don't feel pressure. I don't feel like I'm in the hot seat at all. It's just enjoyable. It's a conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, bl- I, I thank David Blanton for telling me I'm not Arik Levy because then it molded <laughs> my podcast into what it needed to be to where it can grow today. Like it's, I'm very successful at what I do for how many level of episodes I have um, purely because I changed what I do and made it more about me and the person connecting than asking all the same grip trigger questions that right that the arc levies of the world and there's nothing wrong with being arc levy right um, but, but we not every podcast needs to be that either absolutely not 
And if you want to hear spicy topics, then you got the hit factor, mm -hmm. you know, as well as other stuff that they're going to teach you. You know what I mean? Yeah. The hit, I like so the hit factor. And yeah. although I don't agree with Jeremy most of the time, and I feel like I need to rage <laughs> at my phone and type to him when he's completely wrong on something, <laughs> I'm like, Jeremy, stop talking out your butt. You don't know what you're talking. Like, it's a rules thing. Or he, and he absolutely is wrong. And I'm like, I just, I hold back the urge to like, blow him up on message on a message and be like, you're completely wrong. Let read the rules first and then talk. But, um, <laughs> I do enjoy other podcasts too, which I do. Me too. I do entertain myself by listening to shooting podcasts. Not that many. So it's my selective listening is, you know, what I listen to and what I like. So if I listen to you, it means I like it. Now, what do you, what did you find most challenging when you started your podcast? Was it that format until you figured it out or? It was willing, I guess the hardest thing for me to figure out was who should you talk to? Who should you ask? And honestly, it's okay to sit, get the, get told no. Nope. Most people won't tell you no, but if you get told no, don't feel discouraged. It's just that they're not the right person to do it or they just don't want to. Like, um, a few of my friends, you know, I shoot with them in the area. They're like, you know, be like, they're, they're a GM or something. And they're like, I'm like, you want to come on the podcast? They're like, no, I don't fit well on podcasts. I'm very polarizing. I'm like, that's fine. That's your right. Um, yeah. but getting used to talking and not having dead air was the biggest thing I kind of feel like I learned. Um, my buddy, Robert Wyatt of the Paracast, he's like, bro, you got to stop with this dead air. It's not good for the show. And I'm like, <laughs> I know. Um, so I have then learned now to keep talking or ramble on just to get the, to not have the dead air. It might sound silly, but, um, learning from radio talk show hosts as well. Like they, like if you, if you ever listen to a radio talk show in the morning on your drive to work or any commute, um, they're just like, there's four or five of them in a room and they're just boom, 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 yep. boom. Nobody's stopping. They might laugh at each other for a second, but then it's the next guy's talking and, learning yes. to produce a show i wouldn't even i guess I, can't, I won't even say what i do is produce a show i make a show but i try to implement it like as if i was producing it even though it's what its budget is right now netting you know i'm losing i'm in the red on the podcast but it's okay i i hear you um and and that's why i actually go back and i edit that stuff out like if there's a dead air like I don't like more than about a second of a gap mm -hmm. because as a, as a podcast listener myself, I don't want to sit there and did, did I, did something happen? Did my podcast shut off? Why is, all of a sudden I don't hear anything? So yeah, yeah th that is definitely a big thing. Um, yeah. Dead air definitely can be annoying, <laughs> but they will, they will, if you do a video version, the video can be trash as long as the audio is good. If you're not fighting yeah. the quality of listening, like I'll watch YouTube videos in my pocket. What I mean by that is I'll put a YouTube video on with earbuds in and it just sits in my pocket or on a table and I'm listening to it. Mm -hmm. And I lose out on a lot of video content that way. Like my David Blanton, the humble marksman put out a great piece of content on this new gun, this new whiz bang, this new holster. And I just listen to it. So I, I lose all the video, the visual aspects, but his audio is good and I can listen to it. Right. You can still pick up stuff because 
he's still explaining things. Mm-hmm. You just don't see it, but I'm with you. Um, there are certain things you can't do that with. So, yeah, but that's all good. Um, now you do, you seem to go live a lot on your Instagram, uh, especially during dry fire. Is that just to like connect with the listeners or, um, one, I did it originally when I probably about a year ago or more was to show that dry fire isn't sexy. It's not glamorous and we do make mistakes. Um, and I got a lot of, yeah, we we never make mistakes, (laughs) but I got a lot of praise for like, yeah, you fucked that you, you messed those reloads up, but you showed it and you owned it and be like, yeah, I messed them up. I'm human. I'm training. You know, there's always room for improvement. So that's why we're training. Right. So I would go and I'd go live to dry fire, but it's a way to then communicate back and talk to the listeners, especially at a better time for them, because, you know, it's always kind of more in the evening time when I would do those. So people would come in and chit chat, talk a little bit. Dry fire would get relaxed. More of a conversation would happen, show off a gun or a piece of gear. And then eventually get off the call, the live and go back to dry firing. The quality of the dry fire always would go down during a live because the focus wasn't quite there, but it's always good to show that we're all human and we're not all Jay Beals and our basements are not all like Jay Beals basement, even though I wish no, it was that that's a shooting bay basement. Yep. It's literally right? a bay that he just keeps changing the setup on. So good yeah. for him. I mean, it's awesome. You know, to have that space. My basement space is taken up by my mom. So I'm not going to mom. You need to get out of here today. I got to train. Right. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't go over too well. <laughs> he did, he did build his house. So he was like, he yeah, had to convince his wife to let him build in the basement to have that pretty much be all for dry fire and loading ammunition. And there might be a kid toy here or there and maybe some like right. utilities, but it's, it's a dedicated national champion training space. I mean, you know, Noel Zarza, right? Yeah. Like his basement is just as legit. I mean, full size targets everywhere. Um, he changes it around every once in a while, but it's not as cool as Jay's, but Noel's basement is pretty cool on that level. Yeah. And, and the cool thing about Jay is not, I mean, he's also, like you said, he built his house, so he's very handy. So, I mean, he builds swingers and walls and ports and different things. So, he, he definitely has a unique style, and I, I think it's eventually going to pay off. Oh, absolutely. Like, I love that he built the the rope pulley wall because he saw it once on Instagram, and he's like, him and his brother Nick built it, and they've took it, they've driven it to a match once or twice to use it as a prop and instead of just leaving it in the basement. So, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping there's a walkout basement feature to Jay's house that we just haven't seen yet instead of having to carry it up the stairs. <laughs> right. You don't want a weld basement. You want a walkout basement. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, with his relationship with um, Targets USA, I could see where it, here's your idea, Jay. It's only going to cost you 5% royalties. Um, where him and Targets USA, form a relationship a partnership of sorts where you know jay builds a prototype of something and targets usa perfects it and then you know the jbl wall activator or whatever the heck you mm-hmm. want to call it you know what i mean yeah. there there's a future there 
Well, and just like the the Targets USA, I want to say it's the Stomper or the the wall activated stomp box essentially. That had to have come out of Jay's brain, a need that Jay had to train activating targets in dry fire without being like a go fast don't suck or the double alpha one or right. the there's another one that I have that I can't even remember the brand name on it anymore, but you have to still flick it and it runs on a roller bearing or a right. a bearing and it's like Jay, you know, up until this point, Jay, all of Jay's training was pretty much live uh, dry fire. So he needed everything he could squeeze out of it. So those activate those hand activators or foot activators that were reliable and easy to set up in dry fire, you know, that's that had to have come out of Jay's brain. You would think at least some of it, you know, mm -hmm. but again, too, Jason at targets USA, he's, he's pretty creative himself, but you put those two in a room together and we're talking Albert Einstein level creativeness. Oh yeah. I've, there's been plenty of times I've been on the phone with Jason or he sends me a video of a new target. I'm like, what do you call this thing now? Oh, I don't know. I don't have an, I don't have a name for it yet. We're not there yet, <laughs> but he, he's always coming up with something cool. And I think Max Leagrandis is pushing him to newer and high, higher heights too, with the PCSL kind of stuff. Oh, okay. So the, you know, they've got a relationship together as well. Because um, I know Jason, I think at some point was going to make knockdowns or some targets for you know PCSL um, specifically too. So it's there's nothing but going up for when you when you put the best rifle shooter in the world with a, a steel manufacturer and Jay Beal, you know the sky's the limits on what you could make. Yeah. So um, I need to go back for just a second because I had a spicy question I forgot to ask you, but I assume. For the Michigan sectional, you were in the black, not in the red. No, definitely we're in the black. I was very okay. Mm -hmm. All right, that's a USPSA specific question right there. Yep. Just, um, just ask. Well, but I kept. If you read between good, the lines. Yeah, um, <laughs> I kept. I, I'll be open and honest with the listeners. Um, after that match was all said and done, we brought in a little under nine grand into our club for what we made on that match. But I had to keep sure that spending was to a minimum. Um, mm -hmm. I was very fortunate we bought a bunch of targets from Shooter's Connection the year prior. So I didn't have to buy any new targets for the match or pasters. So a lot of the biggest cost was staff. I had to hotel my staff. I had to feed the staff. I bought some staff prizes. Um, and then, of course, you've got water on the bays and then consumables that you need, like paint and more wood to build walls again because they got shot up in the off season. Right. So the money that and in attendance was down from the match prior. So we were already fighting a lower turnout of shooters and between 2022 and 23, we only added $10 to the match fee. So it was 125 the year before, it was 135 this year. So we didn't put a big increase on cost, but we also didn't have to go buy targets. So that was a big thousand dollar plus savings on not having to expend targets and pasters for the match but even if you did you're still talking seven grand right and it's not like so, it goes in my pocket i got i didn't get right. compensated but it goes back to the club i think then what we're they're ending up going to do is hopefully expand the bays or buy more prop buy more steel or activators so reinvest back into the the club um the <coughs> sorry the USPSA club and the the club grounds because they were hoping to push 
the two biggest bays, make them even bigger and push them back farther, about another 20 yards. Oh, so wow. they can actually so they could easily and comfortably shoot the longer steel challenge stages in the bay because currently they can shoot them, but they have to put it at a diagonal. So mm. you've got your okay. 180s a little different. So you don't want, you know, with the 180 because it goes with the berm, it's kind of tricky. So if they're right. able to push and all they'd have to do is push the dirt back and realign, takes out some trees and push some dirt and they could have 60 yard wide, 60 yard deep bays. Okay. Now, um, going back, uh, continuing on this same theme mm-hmm. of having gone back a little bit, mm-hmm. what do you think of Scott's Scott Arnberg's concept of like the area director or somebody buying just a crap ton of targets at the cheapest possible price. And then all the different clubs purchased from that, where if you all order collectively, you can get the targets for cheaper. Well, we've done that actually. Um, We've done plenty of group buys on targets. Um, We'll have our section meeting in January, middle of January, maybe in person, like the, the, the executive board and invited guests will come and people have asked where you get your targets from, who's going to make a buy. So then some of the clubs who can't afford, or does it, it doesn't make sense to necessarily buy the three or four or five boxes they need at once. They're going to be like, Hey, who's already making a buy? Will you ship it to you? And then I'll come pick it up from you. So we've, we do that kind of already, but it's not necessarily what someone's buying from another person. Like the, okay. I, but I do like the idea of helping each other out um, as clubs. And as a, as a Michigan section, we do that very well. We try to accommodate everyone in each club that's there and make sure everyone's got a voice at the table when it comes to what's happening in our state, when it comes to slots for nationals and um, just happenings around the state. Any any chance you guys are going to incorporate any of the Jay Slater points race stuff, ELO rating stuff for national slots? Um, I don't know. I'd have to look at J- um, Jay's um, ELO stuff. But it, when it comes to that, our best shooters go to nationals because they're the ones who want the slots. They ask for the slots from the clubs. So the section coordinator will get the slots from nationals from HQ. He'll look at the activity points and say, okay, Club Brooklyn, you get two, three slots. Um, the next club, you get the same amount of slots because you were kind of in the same tier bracket of participation. Not quite there, but it wouldn't make sense to give one club four and one club two. And then like another two, I think because this year at Nationals, we had six, six slots, seven slots maybe to distribute. No, it was six. We had six slots to distribute through the whole state. Okay. But our best shooters... Um, went to nationals on our slots. So it wasn't like somebody who knew somebody like a C-class shooter or something. We had, we sent all masters to uh, nationals this year. So does anybody ever fall through the cracks? So let's say it is a B-class shooter who wanted to go to carry optics nationals um, and, you know, help set up at his club all the time, participated all the time, but didn't get a slot because the internet crashed when everybody tried to register and he didn't get a slot. Does anybody ever fall through the cracks like that? Um, no, because we would take care okay. of, 
we would take so how it works is the section coordinator distributes to the clubs the club gets to choose right so at that point you could say hey like for myself if i wanted to go to nationals i'd be like hey i volunteer all the time can i have a slot to nationals before you give them to whoever emails you because that's usually how it goes is somebody emails a match director saying hey can i have your nationals slot so they can go sign up usually because that's not a problem but for people who but most of the people uh, who at my club, uh, Brooklyn Sportsman's Club at the time, we would just go RO national. Like they would go RO national, so they wouldn't need a slot necessarily, like a, a pre-registration slot. They would just get a staff slot. Gotcha. So, so it was easy to distribute to shooters. But but I did remember we did have the actual the B class national champion Skyler Davis is from Michigan, and he got a slot to nationals. So he okay good. So he he was able to win and get a match bump at nationals. Nice. Good for him. All right. Let's go back to uh, PCL for a moment. PCSL for a moment. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed a rise in PCSL matches in Michigan? There's been one two gun match. Well, I can't say that there was one decent sized two gun match. And then the first, that outlaw club I was telling you about at the very beginning at um, mm-hmm. where that Tim Heron class is, that's what they run now. They run PCSL matches out there for their monthly out, outlaw matches as i call them but they're run under pcsl rules because there's no real draw to go there it's for me it's a three-hour drive to get to that club if i wanted to shoot there so it definitely draws them to people from all over the state who want to shoot pcsl because it's hard for most of our clubs who already shoot uspsa or idpa or steel challenge to add another shooting sport to another weekend because club activities are already full okay so what are your kind of winding this thing up now mm-hmm. what are your personal future goals in the sport well um as much as i would love to be a grandmaster i i can see it happening at some point um you know i'm very fortunate my wife and i you know no children well we have fur children, so uh, there's no real <laughs> commitment to, to ch- having to take care of any kids, and, which I know is a very odd circumstance for most people. You know, I can kind of focus, be selfish on myself a little bit and train and dry fire. So I'm very lucky in that regard. So I can see being a master very short. Like I'm in, a, I'm in the middle of B class right now. I just need to line up a classifier or two, and I could push to A class. I was very proud of this season. Um, I shot Area 5 against Aaron Edens, the national champion. And I shot almost 73% of Aaron. So I know that I'm on the right path of match performance. So it's not just, oh, I'm a paper A or an a-, a B or whatever. I'm truly right. progressing and I'm making good progress this year. So I'm hoping, you know, B and A, be national, you know, even if I stay in B, I want to be competitive at all major matches I go to. So that's a goal and I'm working very hard on it. And it's coming to fruition. So I'm happy with that. Um, always would love to go up in classification, but I'd rather be performing at major matches against national contenders in my classification. Um, more goals is, you know, for in the USPSA sector is I'm hoping in 2024, our current Michigan section coordinator, uh, he's up for reelection and he's not planning on rerunning because he's going to move to for personal reasons. So my goal is, is I'm eligible at this point to become the Michigan section coordinator coordinator. So my goal is to take that responsibility and be the coordinator for a while be able to help clubs, get people to understand the politics of USPSA, support all of our clubs and make sure 
as a younger guy, I can be the voice of change where it needs to change to progress and grow our sport because we have seen losing shooters within our state um, mm. due, to, due to COVID. Like we were hot, we were high on the hog on shooters. You'd have 75, 90 shooters at a match. Now you're barely getting 50 at, at most of wow. them. So we're down in shooting percentage and the people who do shoot, they go to all the matches essentially. So we need to find okay. ways. We need to find ways to get new people to shoot or get people back into shooting, if that's through marketing, uh, media, um, you know, social outreach, things that we can kind of do better. That I feel that a younger guy who's got new ideas, who's willing to take a chance, is going to work on that. So I'm hoping to get the Michigan section vote, um, the board vote to approve um, me running because how that would work is. The Michigan section um, club match directors sit on a board. We, well, we call it a board executive committee, if you call it. Um, and they can approve or disapprove of someone running. If if people want to run for it, they can approve them to be the section coordinator. So that's my goal. And my goal is to be the section coordinator, which I don't think there'll be a problem um, because I, I am passionate about this sport. I thought I wanted to be an area director, but I just don't have the PTO time to be gone on the road as much as I know that requires. So it's stepping for now. Yeah. Okay. But maybe four or eight years down the road, maybe. Maybe if or the, 12 if the right, years, if the person, if the not, if the right person's not in that position, absolutely. I am more than willing to at that time reevaluate. Um, I think coming up in 24 is when we, people start campaigning for, is it 24 or 25? I can't remember when the next, I think it's the next election. So it'd be area two and area five are at the same time. So Rick Steele's not going to rerun. I've talked to him. Rick's a friend. Um, okay. Um, and I appreciate everything Rick has done for me and, um, you know, our area and, and the org. He has stood up for the right thing on many occasions, like uh, stepping, um, standing up and voting no on Joe Rutowski's, uh suspension. When okay. most people didn't, but, uh, <coughs> excuse me, but, um, I know he's not going to rerun and I know there's plenty of people who are going to go in the running for area five, who've got more time to dedicate to it at this time. So, but I think, okay. I think they take over, they would take Jan over January one of 25, but they're, they're running in 23, well, 24. Gotcha. Yeah. I was, I was trying to look, I mean, the website is set up to where it's not necessarily the easiest to navigate in a hurry. Correct. So, oh, here we go. I found it. Area five election is yeah, July of next year. So they'd take office in 25. Okay. Yeah. January of 25. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I found it too. Okay. All right. And was it area two as well? Yep. So yeah, you're right. Area two and area five. And I don't know if Leighton is running again or not or what. Um, so. Knowing Leighton, I must, am going to expect that he is going to rerun. Um, just knowing how he feels about the sport and feels what he can do for the sport in his area. I, I will say from what I heard from some of the coordinators there is they do have meetings on a regular basis, which I am totally for about communicating with the area director communicating down to section coordinators so they can then pass the information on, which I think even area eight, wasn't Ted doing those before he became president. He was, I think he was having area direct area, direct area director meetings with the section coordinators. Maybe. 
<laughs> but I, I think it's a right a step in the right direction is actually having those Zoom calls or WebEx yeah. or something just so people can actually talk to them. So you're not answering the same questions to everybody twice, you know, because, <laughs> you know, that's the worst part. Yeah. You sit on the phone all night spending your free time and, you know, your significant other, their significant other is probably like, oh, what did you get into now? And you're on the phone forever. But yep. at least if you can answer all the same, the, everyone's got the same question. You can answer it all at once yep. on that kind of open-ish forum. It makes yeah, it a they're, lot easier. They're, they're much more willing to allow you an hour or two at one time versus 30 minutes tonight, 30 minutes tomorrow, 30 minutes the next night, because it just seems to always be in the way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. It's interesting, though. They've only partially updated Area 8. <laughs> they have Russell as the... Area eight director, but the next election is July of 2023. Oh, <laughs> somebody forgot it. That's all. They just forgot to update that. And put 27. Darn it. Rick Bratzel. <laughs> That's hilarious. So 25 would be one and three. Okay. Yep. All righty then. Which is already, you... crazy, already crazy to think that Scott Arnberg is already going to be up for reelection. That is nuts. And he literally just got in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I have a feeling if he does well, then it'll be a formality, you know, assuming he wants to continue. So mm -hmm. he seems to be a, a pretty good guy for that. So um, I assume you you're active and you vote as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm going to and I'm always going to I'm always going to be an advocate for people to go out and vote, even though it's not my election. I'm, yeah. Like, Area six. I was like, you guys got to go vote. You know, you've got good options here. Go vote. Um don't be shy. Uh, I don't necessarily need to feel that I've got to press my who I'm going to vote. For. It doesn't matter who I'm going to vote for in any election. But it's the fact that you just tell people to go out and vote. Yeah, exactly. Because you can't complain if you don't stick your neck out and go hit a simple button to vote. Right. And, and, will... and if you ever shoot major matches, you should be voting. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, if, you, if all you ever do is shoot locals and you have no plan, okay, then and I'm not going to. That guy is not going to, he's not going to care. He's not going to notice the politics. So, right. Well, I, and, I, I'm, and I was glad to see Russell win because I do see him at all these major matches. Like all the major matches I shot, but one this year I saw Russell at. You know, he was out there. We were there. He was a range master for me at one of them. Um, when I was down, he was the range master of Kentucky and, you know, he does his job. So I'm, I'm glad to see Russell in there. I hope he's able to impact good change on the board and, I do too. I have high, uh, you know, I hope that people go in, do, you know, make good decisions and do the right thing. Um, my only concern with Russell is he seems to be very aloof. Mm -hmm. So we've always exchanged pleasantries. I, I have no ill will towards him. I like the guy, but he's just a little aloof, which, you know, it, it makes it hard to vote for somebody if you don't know who they are. A little bit. Yeah. I can so, definitely agree and see that. Yeah. So that's my, he's just a, per, a guy who keeps to himself. But when you're running for a political office per se, you know, you got to come out of your shell a little bit. Yeah. And I've even talked to him about that. It's like, I was like, Russell, why didn't you talk to anybody? He's like, I'm just like, eh. I'm not even really trying to campaign. It was just kind of like how Matt Hopkins went for area six. He's like, I'm not really campaigning, but here we are. Right. Yeah. I reached out to him. So I tried. 
Yeah. Just just tell him that you have Perrier for him and he might. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that his favorite water? Yeah, he loves Perrier. Um, I agree. The peach Perrier is delicious. Okay. I am anti-French, so I don't do Perrier. Yeah. It was tasty. Uh, but it was always nice because it was always free. Thanks, Russell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Manny, that's all I've got. Was there anything else you wanted to add or anything we talked about that you feel you need to explain or I th- no, I think we talked about a lot today and th- like Dave, I appreciate you coming on. Um, let, well, let me come on. I mean, we're fine. We're doing this on your show. I kind of forget cause this is usually where I wrap it up too, but, uh, <laughs> no. And, uh, I guess I want to thank all my, my podcast partners. I won't name them all, but I appreciate all of them, uh, for supporting my podcast and my endeavors. Um, Without them, it's kind of hard to do what I, some of the things I do, but uh, I thank them. And I really do, I thank my wife for being super supportive of my second part-time, full-time job kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, it, I don't get compensated for it, but it's like a job and it puts a lot of hours into it. So uh, I do mm-hmm. uh, thank her for being uh, super supportive and flexible on that kind of regard. So. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. No problem, Dave. Anytime you want to chit-chat, I'm more than willing to. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.